Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Weissman. Today we're covering the turmoil in Russia in the lead up to the presidential election in March, an election that is rigged to keep Putin in place. We were scheduled to speak with Boris Kagerlitsky, but on the 13th of February, his verdict from December that freed him from four and a half months of pretrial detention in the far north was overturned and he was whisked into custody to begin serving five years in a penal colony. We'll discuss the details about Kagerlitsky, the death of Alexei Navalny on February 16th in the context of the upcoming election, and what this means for Russia as we mark the second anniversary of Putin's brutal invasion and war on Ukraine with exiled dissident activists and scholars Ilya Budratskis and Grusha. All this when our program returns in just a moment. Welcome to Jacobin Radio. I'm Susie Wiseman. Today we're speaking to Russian dissident activists and scholars, Ilya Budraitskis and Grusha. There are many markers showing February 2024 to be a landmark month of cruelty, not least in Gaza, but also in Russia, where we turn our focus today. Friday, February 16th, ushered in a new turning point for Putin's Russia with the death of prominent oppositionist activist, Alexei Navalny, in the Arctic Circle penal colony called Harp, which underscored both the Kremlin's power and its weakness, increasing the instability that threatens Putin's rule. At least that's something that we hope to discuss. Our guests are going to explain it. As I mentioned in the overall intro, we were scheduled to speak to Boris Kagerlitsky today about the conditions in Russia leading up to the March election. But on the 13th of February, his December verdict that freed him from four and a half months pretrial detention in the far north was overturned, and he was whisked into custody to begin serving five years in a penal colony. This was unexpected, brutal, and significant. Three days later, on February 16th, Alexei Navalny died, as I mentioned, in the harsh Arctic Circle penal colony where he was being held. These events occur in the context of the upcoming second anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine and the approaching rubber stamp presidential election, when the Kremlin, as the New York Times wrote today, looks to portray Russians as united behind Putin and his bid for a fifth term. Putin may assume that all is going well for him. The economy has not tanked. The war is going somewhat better for Russia and opponents are being put behind bars. Street demonstrations are fewer, smaller and immediately snuffed out. Thousands of Russians have been prosecuted for criticizing the war and thousands more have left the country. So with all of that grimness, I want to welcome both Ilya Budraiskis and Grusha to the program to get their analysis. And let me just say that Ilya Budraiskis is a political theorist and activist previously based in Moscow. He joined UC Berkeley as a visiting scholar in 2023. He writes regularly for Open Democracy and many other outlets. And his essay collection, Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, was published by Versu in 2022. He is a member of the editorial board of Postly Media, 
and he also has his own telegraph channel. And Grusha, which I'm very pleased to have here for the first time, is the managing editor of Postly Media. And she's the author of also many articles, including Adorno in the Kremlin and Did Lenin Create Ukraine on the Right of Nations to Self-Determination and Marxism. And let me just say before we start, Postly, which you can, it means after in Russian, and you can find it online, was formed after Russia invaded Ukraine. If you look on the About Postly tab, it says, as a community of like-minded authors, we condemn the war, which has unleashed a humanitarian disaster, wrought colossal destruction, and resulted in the massacre of civilians in Ukraine. This same war has provoked a wave of repression and censorship in Russia. As part of the left, we cannot view this war separately from the immense social inequality and powerlessness of the working majority. And so there's much more about that, but it seems as good as any place to begin. So welcome to both of you. I think we need to start with the murder of Navalny. Uh, this this is just so fresh and, of course, dominates all the news everywhere. And even though he had been sentenced to the harshest of conditions, this part, at least to me, seemed just not just a gut punch, but really out of the blue. I'd like to get your reactions first. Maybe, Ilya, you begin. Yes, of course, uh, it was a shock on one uh, side, but on the other, it was somehow expected because uh, he was systematically tortured, uh, sent to this very far away prison. Uh, That's why it seemed that it was a planned murder. Yeah, I think we should remind ourselves about what happened to Navalny because his story of being in prison started before the war. In January 2021, he was uh, detained on accusation, the violation of parole. He returned to Moscow and was arrested directly in the airport. He violated his parole because he was in Germany, in Berlin, where he was undergoing treatment after his poisoning, Uh, which happened uh, while he was on the trip in Siberia, preparing uh, for the upcoming regional elections. So this whole uh, situation from the start, outside any form of legality, because the very Mm -hmm. case that he was prosecuted on was already imposed on him in, like he was convicted in 20. Of 14, but the European Court of Human Rights uh, ruled that Russia had violated uh, the right of Navalny to the fair trial and uh, ordered the government of Russia to pay 56,000 euros in legal costs and damages, which the Russian government did pay to Navalny. However, still, he was prosecuted on the case that was already closed. Then, Following his arrest right away, the film Putin's Palace was released and there were mass protests across Russia. So right away, prison sentence was extended and his organization, the Foundation on Fighting Corruption, was designated an extremist organization and liquidated. In March 2022, Navalny was sentenced to an additional nine years in prison after being found guilty of embezzlement and contempt of court in a new trial described as a sham by Amnesty International. But his appeal was rejected. 
and he was transferred to a high security prison. In August 2023, he was sentenced to additional 19 years in prison on extremism charges, meaning that he could have been released not earlier than December 2038. So in December 2023, Navalny went missing and he reemerged in an Arctic Circle corrective colony Mm. uh, very far away from any form of public control uh, because it is just simply absolutely impossible to get to that colony. Any sort of journalists, experts, or whoever, for them, even right now, they cannot get there because they just simply cannot get the permission and it's just so Mm. far away. On the 14th of February, like a day before Navalny died, he was consigned again to a solitary punishment cell for the 27th time in his three-year term in prison. Mm. So Overall, he spent over 300 days in that cell. And these conditions definitely undermined his health. Even though, of course, he's young, robust, and absolutely courageous, whatever we think of his politics. It's, you know, on the left, many people criticized his earlier stances. But Ilya, you and I spoke about it right after the demonstrations and about how important it was for the left to be part of this opening that Navalny represented. And that, as we see in the world everywhere today, standing with those who consistently defend democracy is where we have to be on the left. We have no hope of actually getting to other audiences. And I guess you could also say that the response just shows how threatening those stances are. Yeah, I I just want to add that uh, Navalny was not just about the democratic rights, but it was about this political and social regime as a whole. And uh, it was about the very dramatic history of resistance and politicization of the younger generation of Russians uh, during the, the past decade. So the Navalny choice in the beginning of 2021, when he decided to come back to Russia, made him a legendary person, a person who was ready to pay a very high price for his political ideas. That's why his death is so tragic and so shocking, because for millions of people, he was a symbol of the possibility of any sort of social and political alternative. And yesterday we were actually in San Francisco where the local Russian community gathered speak about what was Navalny for. And uh, it actually it was very touching because many of these Russians, they came uh, recently to U.S. as the political refugees. And many of them were active in the protest movement in Russia during the the past decades. So for all of them, it was not just about Navalny, but it was also about their own experience. That's why many people around the world, and, and in Russia especially, they felt themselves very much depressed with what was happened. Thank you for bringing that information in to our audience. It's This is a heartbreaking moment. 
but one also that was magnified, certainly by Navalny's death, by but what happened to Kagalitsky on the 13th of February. And I should just preface it by saying, as I did in the introduction, that I spoke with him just before and he said, don't worry, you know, set the Zoom up for such and such time. I'll get home from the appeal that I'm not worried at all about it. And we can discuss the election, which is just seems, oh, my God. And and even the alternative so-called candidate, Nadezhdin, whose name means hopeful, you know, and, and who's no longer hopeful. But I want to go into what happened to Kagerlitsky because you know him well. Our audience knows him well. He's like Navalny, a courageous dissident, you could say, who spent many, was in, imprisoned in Brezhnev's time, in, in Yeltsin's time, and now the third time under Putin. And this time, very seriously, he's been sentenced to five years in a penal colony. And it's really quite ironic in some ways, because when he was freed in December, after a very quick two-day trial, he was fined rather than sent to prison for up to seven years, as they were asking. And his fine amounted to, you know, about $6,500. And then on top of that, he had bankruptcy charges and they added legal costs. And the state was quite sure that he wouldn't be able to pay the fine. And yet uh, Rob Cor, the uh, journal that he founded and edited, quickly did crowdfunding and they came up with more than enough money. And I saw in an interview that uh, Boris did this week in Russia, and he was sort of joking about the situation that he was fined, but the state didn't want to let him pay the fine. And he went into the bank and he had all kinds of trouble, but he paid the fine. And so at this appeal trial on Tuesday, they said that they had to send him to prison because he didn't pay the fine, but he paid the fine. So let me give it to you to take uh, it from there. Yeah. So, so first of all, excuse me, it's uh, absolutely hopeless to discuss uh, all these cases in terms of legality. Navalny case or, or Kagarinsky case. And many uh, others he too. Was, uh, he was arrested for the justification of terrorism. Then he was fined for the justification of terrorism. Uh, so then the court decided that probably he has to go to, to prison for five years. Uh, so it's uh, all about political decisions uh, coming from the top. Uh, yeah. There is no any independent court at all. Any legal defense means like nothing in Russia, and it's very important for all American listeners to understand. So why Kagarlitsky was released in December? Uh, I believe that he was released only because of the public campaign for his freedom. Right, and uh, international so, solidarity uh, Yeah, so there, there were a lot of reactions, not just from the Western world, uh, but from the sword world, from the BRICS countries, especially sensitive for Putin's regime. And also Putin was asked personally in the press conferences about Kagarlitsky, which probably led him to ask why he is so important for our partners in BRICS uh, countries and so on, then probably he decided just to give Kagarlitsky the last opportunity to leave the country. So when he was released in December, in the same day, he got back his passport. Yeah. And he was nearly openly invited to leave. And he decided not to do it. That's why he was arrested again. That's the uh, exact outcome of his decision not to leave. And uh, now, of course, we 
continue to pressure the Russian government uh, from all possible ways to give him opportunity to be out of prison or to leave the country or to stay in Russia. I think that's the key point, too. I asked him, too, are you going to leave? And he, I think he say, made one statement at one point saying, well, I've traveled in a lot of different places and I might like to go for a vacation somewhere, but the fight is here. It spent his entire life fighting in Russia. And so it was out of the question in many ways, also because he had family and other sorts of commitments there. And as you know, Kagerlitsky is a you know very optimistic person. And I think it's worth reading what he said in his statement at the courtroom to Rubcor, the journal that he edits, he said, I am, as always, in high spirits. I continue to collect data and materials for new books, including descriptions of prison life, now in Moscow institutions. Anyway, see you soon. I am sure that everything will be fine eventually. We will see each other again, both on the channel and in person. We just need to live a little longer and survive this dark period for our country. Now, there's something else that I want to bring up about that, because it seems to me you are absolutely right in mentioning that they gave him the passport. Uh, it was like a signal that he should leave the country, that his arrest was imminent. And he made the decision then. And he continues that decision now. But there seemed to have been an element of schizophrenia in a way, in terms of the way that he's been handled. And, and maybe you could even say with Navalny. Now, Kagerlitsky himself insists that there are divisions at the top and that the divisions uh, within the Kremlin are what explains, for example, first Navalny, you know, he said there was discussion about releasing him. And he said that he was brought to Moscow first. He was there for a couple of days while the discussion, you know, went on in the highest circles. I don't know how Boris had access to this information. But then uh, Navalny is whisked away to Harp when, the, as you explained, Grusha, so very far away and out of communication. And then Boris himself, he's freed. He pays the fine. Now, you said don't discuss the legalities, but surely there is some significance to the fact that there seems to be a back and forth pull in terms of how do we deal with these important voices that, you know, will reflect badly on the Kremlin and their policy. I'd like to get, first of all, your reaction just to that. Yes, I personally don't know where this information is coming from. And I myself haven't got any of that information. However, there might be that, like several oscillations in what Kremlin does. And I think the most vivid example of that was Prigozhin's attempted mutiny, which showed that there was definitely a problem of coordination between various agencies that could be the Russian Ministry of Defense, Russian Federal Security Service, and the political administration. So those bodies might have their own understandings and vision of uh, how the situation should develop. However, I would say that the renewed imprisonment of Kagerlitsky, the death of Navalny, and just so many other cases that are just happening in Russia. And I would love to maybe talk about that and the general climate that has formed in Russia further on in our discussion. Uh, but the only thing that is clear is that regardless of the oscillations that there might be, and the different tests that they are running with uh, admitting Nadezhdin to collect votes 
for yeah. running in the elections and then rejecting the <laughs> signatures that he collected, all of that just demonstrates that there is a clear path that the Russian regime is taken. And that is the path that can be demonstrated to us by the example of Belarus. Uh, after the protest in Belarus following the election in 2020, right. uh, where there were millions of people coming on the streets, uh, there were uh, horrible crackdowns by the police. People were tortured in prison. They're still being tortured right now. There are people being arrested on the charges of participation in those protests back in 2020. Over 600,000 Belarusians left Belarus mm -hmm. since 2020. And that is in the country whose population is only 10 million. Definitely the affinity between those regimes and also the Belarusian regime depends very much on the regime in Russia. So all of that just shows that regardless of the various oscillations in the leadership, what we are going to see is definitely more repression. I'd like to get your view on that, too, because, uh, Ilya, you have been writing for a very long time on dissidents and repression. And you yourself, both of you, had to flee in order not to be further repressed in Russia. And thank you, Grusha, for mentioning Lukashenko and, and Belarus. We also saw in the past week the Azerbaijani incumbent, Aliyev, secured a fifth term as yet another one of these autarkic, you know, authoritarian leaders. And of course, Belarus is going to go to the polls again this month in the first election since the 2020 crackdown. And let's say stolen election, massive fraud. And I want to go there. But first, let's go to you, Ilya, and then let's talk more about what's happening in terms of the uh, March election. Mm. Uh, so uh, the first thing to say is that these elections, uh, of course, is not about the real choice. All the candidates uh, will be presented in these elections. They are selected by Putin personally, by uh, his administration. And the main criteria for selection was, uh, first, uh, they need to be older than Putin. And uh, <laughs> second, they are not authorized to criticize Putin. So they can build their campaign on the criticism of their main opponent who is in power for the last uh, 25 years. So, for example, the uh, candidate of the Communist Party, uh, he openly said that he admires Putin, uh, is, is, a, is a great person, and the only uh, little problem is uh, capitalism, uh, so we need to... Uh, kind of reduce it a bit, but in general, everything is fine. Uh, I, I think Grusha will say more uh, more about uh, how these elections will be organized, because their main political aim of these elections is to demonstrate their homogeneity, you yeah. know, unity of the Russians uh, around their leader, uh, marginality of all sorts of the dissent. And, uh, of course, uh, these elections will be decisive uh, because the next term will be different. It will be more uh, brutal. It will be more repressive. And uh, I think that, for example, the murder of Navalny is mm -hmm. an important step towards this uh, new 
semi-fascist condition of Putin's government. And about all this topic of the splits of the elites, uh, there is a science <laughs> called Kremlinology is about is a science about these rumors. What is happening in the right. heads of all these people? I have uh, to just inter- inter- behind inter- the closed doors yeah. and so on. And we are not experts in the science. But the most important thing to say that, of course, in this uh, kind of huge bureaucratic apparatus, they always have the contradiction between the different logics of management. So, for example, you have the presidential administration, which is responsible for political management of the society. And you have a secret service, which is about security, which is about elimination of the dissent in the society. And sometimes, of course, they uh, contradict uh, each other. So, for example, the people in the presidential administration, they could believe that maybe it's not a good idea to arrest uh, Boris Kogarlitsky because... You know, of the image of the Russian government in the uh, eyes of France in Russia and Latin America or, or whatever, the logic of a secret service or the logic of the police could be different. And mm-hmm. in the current situation in Russia, the um, logic of the secret service is much more important and much more powerful than the logic of the presidential administration. So uh, I think that uh, in the case of Kogarlitsky, that was the crucial moment. This week, the sentencing of Boris Kogarlitsky to five years and the death of Navalny, that these were uh, necessary before the election or in any way related to the election? Was it critical at this very moment to snuff out any possible, um, you know, voices coming through? And I'd like to also just say, symbol, you know, symbolically, you, you were talking about Kremlinology and, you know, I'm older than you are. And I remember during the Brezhnev years that, you know, in a closed society, you're left with rumor and rumors abound. And there were all sorts of rumors. You know, I used to say in order to study the Soviet Union, you had to be a detective. You had to be able to read the tea leaves. You know, And and we're back to that. And it's striking to me as someone whose field of study is, of course, the Stalin years, especially and the years leading up to it, that we're now back there minus the so-called socialist aspect. It's quite stunning to see. Putin using Stalin's playbook with regard to dissidents, even though Stalin didn't need to pretend to legitimize his rule with these farcical elections, even though during Brezhnev and Khrushchev Brezhnev, there were elections, but only one candidate. So it seems like, you know, that this is a sort of new twist to this situation. And it's more like, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, But it's really quite stunning to see it. And I just, you know, wanted both of you to talk a little bit more about this election, because it seems like Nadezhdin, you know, came out of nowhere. Um, All of a sudden, he got all of these signatures. And I think Kagaliski said to me that it was possible he'd get 30 million votes, and that's not enough, but it's a, a big percentage. And so he was quickly disqualified from being on the ballot. Better not to have, you know, a so-called oppositionist who you can trounce to make you look democratic. I'd like to go a little bit more deeply into this electoral farce that exists in Russia. There was a wonderful article on your media, I think, last week about why voting. You know, what's the point of voting in an elaborately managed election you know, process? If you know what the outcome is, what's the point? And, and yet you see 
I'm just going back to the earlier terms of Putin, that even when he was the most popular leader, probably in the world with the 70 percent or 80 percent, you know, approval, he still stuffed ballots and still had, let's say, polling stations in Chechnya where there was an ongoing war and and still had to, you know, to show overwhelming support, 99 percent support. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about why he felt the need to cheat when he was winning and why why he continues it. That's a brilliant formulation, Susie. <laughs> I think that we should make clear that Putin doesn't believe in democracy. As we uh, saw in his interview uh, with Tucker Carlson just recently, uh, Putin believes that the United States is governed by some kind of secret committee and elections play no role in what is happening. So even when he was asked by Carlson whether Trump could change the situation, I think quite contrary to what Carlson expected, Putin said that he doesn't have so much faith in Trump, unfortunately, because it's not Trump who decides, but the secret committee. So he'd preferred the secret committee to make up its mind and finally withdraw all support from Ukraine and uh, struck a deal with him while correcting their mistakes. So this all demonstrates that for Putin, elections is not something that concerns his own country and his internal politics. That's why he needs these figures, because that's some kind of showcase or display that he will show to the outside world and declare that Russia is just as democratic as all other countries are because he doesn't believe that democracy actually exists. And he's never seen that, like that his whole life experience. And we know that his background is from the secret services of the former KGB, which is now the Federal Security Service. All his understanding of how politics is made is about playing with those different figures and indicators to compete and boast with other leaders. This is one aspect. Uh, The other is, of course, how the whole system has been changing uh, throughout his rule and even though there were more drastic changes uh, which started being introduced uh, from uh, 2019 when the uh, so-called electronic remote voting was introduced. Uh, This uh, first was uh, tested in Moscow and the results of this test, as uh, the independent observers claimed, were very negative. Further, when this system was used back in 2021 during the elections to the Russian state Duma. It was again used in order to uh, manipulate votes. The candidates from the opposition who vote at the real polling stations, uh, they won the like in different points, for instance, in Moscow, uh, even though they wanted the polling stations, the electronic voting procedure, uh, which took some 10 hours longer than the real people did by their hand. So this system completely altered the results. 
and the <laughs> opposition candidates didn't get through this election. And not just in Moscow, in Yakutia, in a lot of different places. It was completely the reverse. But maybe you could say a little bit more about that, because it's not just electronic voting, but it was this idea. I think it was Navalny who pushed for this, right, where he said, vote for anybody other than Putin. It doesn't matter if you like them or not. Just make sure that there are a lot of votes against Putin. Explain this system and why it's significant. Uh, yeah, so this uh, idea, uh, which uh, Navalny called uh, the smart vote, or yes, uh, we yes. can call it the tactical vote, based on this uh, real condition of the Russian political system. Because the main aim of these elections uh, for uh, Putin is uh, just to show once again that there is no alternative to him. So look of all the other, uh, you know, candidates. They are just a bunch of clowns. They just present themselves uh, the lack of any possibility of any alternative to uh, Putin, who used to be the only possible leader of Russia. Because according to Putin's ideology, uh, the real alternative to him is just chaos. So you yeah. should uh, choose between him and like destruction of the country, destruction of your life, foreign occupation, catastrophe, uh, and whatever. So that is the real choice. And uh, this real choice, of course, is, is presented in these um, elections this year. But the idea of the smart vote or the tactical vote was just to change the very ideological construction of these elections to create opportunity for any alternative under any possible name. So the, the real uh, political program of the person doesn't matter too much. What matters is the structural opportunity for alternative, the possibility that the other candidate that uh, then Putin could accumulate, you know, significant number of votes, and that will express that you have a big part of the society that really want some changes, that really wants the alternative. So that's why in the current elections, they did all that is possible to prevent any opportunity for uh, appearance of such a candidate. That was the main reason why finally uh, Nadezhdin was not allowed to present because the initial idea with Nadezhdin was to have just another meaningless uh, liberal clown who will show the marginal position of anti-Putin liberals in the in Russian society. But the the real outcome of, of his campaign, even in the first stage, was, was the opposite. So that's yeah. why he he was not allowed uh, to take part in these elections. And uh, for now, there is uh, ongoing debate in the Russian opposition about the best strategy for this upcoming elections. But the uh, the last thing to say that for Navalny, when he called for this uh, smart vote, it was not only a question of the, um, uh, let's say, electoral behavior in the day of vote. Uh, for him, it was a part of the strategy for the uh, street mobilization. So yeah. it was the, the element needed to mobilize people for more action, uh, more than just, uh, just a vote. Uh, and for now, of course, the opportunity for any any such mobilization they're uh, they're so limited, and yeah. uh, we we can't now just 
continue this uh, smart vote uh, strategy in the same way as uh, it was possible even uh, five, uh, seven years ago. I think it's important to actually note that, you know, that there is still a lot of opposition, including perhaps to the war, although the media certainly tries to portray, you know, Russians as united behind Putin. I think you need a far more sophisticated understanding. Again, I reach back into Soviet times when people, you know, had conflicting thought processes because the official ideology was such a sharp contrast in daily reality uh, that people basically live to minimize their contact with the secret police. You mentioned this and its importance, Ilya, but the secret police or the KGB, at least during the Soviet period, was the sort of tool of atomization of the society. It was so ubiquitous and in every place that it forced people to live their solitary lives totally dependent on the state, but unable to express their real opinions. And I thought that collapsed when the Soviet Union collapsed, because under capitalism, you have other roles to keep people in line. You have, you know, uh, the tool of unemployment. You have so many different ways to keep people working in the system. And yet it seems that the uh, role of the secret police is now back, and it's still a very atomized society, and that even in terms of the war, you know, I think it was Kagalitsky who said it's not that people are for or against the war. They force themselves not to think about it or not to think about politics because, you know, politics brings trouble. And yet we saw, yes, uh, after Navalny's death, that people were lining up with flowers to put at the monument in front of the Lubyanka, the very infamous site of Stalin's repression, that, you know, people were lining up and putting flowers there. That was very appropriate and very significant in my view. So I think we should talk a little bit more about both the role of the secret police and, as Grisha mentioned at the outset, what other uh, repression is going on right now that is preventing people from getting out into the streets, as you said, Navalny called for? Yeah, I should start maybe with what happened right after the war began. Uh, so in March uh, 2022, uh, two highly punitive articles were introduced in the Russian Criminal Code. Uh, one of them uh, concerned dissemination of uh, untruthful information or so-called fake news article. The other one uh, was on the discreditation of the Russian armed forces and the last on the calls for sanctions against Russia. All of those articles of the criminal code can be punished by uh, from five to 15 years in jail. Overall, and according to the Russian human rights group Ovede Info, and I do really recommend their website, they have all their information about the repression in Russia, especially about the political cases. Uh, so over 1,000 people right now are deprived of liberty on politically motivated charges. The number of people who are currently persecuted whether deprived of liberty, serving non-custodial sentences under investigation or outside Russia, is about 2,000 individuals. All of those cases do not include uh, cases of charges of extremism, terrorism, uh, vandalism, etc. So uh, the whole uh, number of people is a lot higher. 
we should also say that uh, there is the, the overall climate, just for you to have an idea of how it feels. Um, in the fall 2022, Putin signed the law on the total ban of LGBTQ propaganda. Yeah. Uh, books were removed from bookstores, websites had to close down, uh, Facebook pages had to be deleted, because for all of that, for any display of even a rainbow sign, uh, people wow. could get persecuted. Now, in summer 2023, a law banning the change of gender marker in one's passport was adopted. So you cannot change your gender. It's illegal. And wow. if people were, for instance, married outside Russia, those marriages were not counted as legal anymore. Uh, then in November 2023, Russia's Supreme Court outlawed what is called as in an international LGBT public movement. So the Russian Supreme Court marked it as extremist. So being a non-heterosexual person in Russia is a criminal offense. So you belong to an extremist organizations. And this would label any gay, lesbian, transgender, or queer person living in Russia. And that means that all those people just have to either live or they, ha like they have to leave Russia or they have to hide and uh, not display any sort. Like So that means that even if they have reported, and this is another thing that also goes back to uh, the uh, Soviet times. So there are reports uh, that people file against each other also in workplaces. So and, denunciations. And then also this uh, whole, uh, like, just think about how Russian labor uh, market is structured. Over 60% of the Russian population works in the public sector. So that means, and th this is the huge resource for the Russian government also during the elections, because all people who work in the public sector have to vote and they have to, if the electronic vote is available in their region, they have to vote uh, using this electronic vote and they have to report. So all of those structures uh, that were formed during the Soviet Union was, let's say, the head of the hospital or a school director or a university rector. All of those people are working for the Kremlin. And they have to, because otherwise they will lose their positions. So it becomes a sort of the civil sector becomes the replacement for the Communist Party, which was always a kind of integrating agency for the elite in Soviet society, because it was the state. So this is incredibly illuminating. Thank you for, for those details. And what does it mean? Uh, maybe you can speak to this, Ilya, in terms of what we're going to see in the next year. Like, everybody's already assuming that we're going to see a, a brutal, a further brutal crackdown um, in Russia. But there's also the question of the war and the way that it's going and the opposition. So I'd like to get your, you know, not a crystal ball uh, view, but, but your analysis of where this stands. I would just like to preface it by saying, I think that all of these moves indicate the weakness at the heart of the regime and that there's a, a fundamental instability that, you know, you don't know how long repression will work, but it can't always work. 
Yeah, but, but of course we we should notice that uh, Russia is uh, is very rich country. It's one of the main military powers in the world, and uh, that's why Putin rely uh, rely on this, and he will continue the offensive in Ukraine. Uh, so it's very much possible that uh, there will be another wave of mobilization in Russia. Uh, so he is ready to pay any price for uh, the offensive uh, this year, as we uh, recently saw in in the town of Avdiivka in Donbass region, uh, where uh, Russians lost uh, like thousands of people, uh, of soldiers, just to take this, uh, okay, strategically important, but totally destroyed, you know, small industrial town uh, in Donbass. Uh, so it, probably some uh, five, six thousand only Russian soldiers uh, died in this in this battle. So uh, that is the good good example of the character of the uh, of the uh, further Russian uh, offensive, which could be successful. Uh, firstly, because uh, Putin is ready to pay this uh, this price of, of of the lives of the Russian soldiers, and uh, secondly, because of the lack of the military aid uh, to Ukraine. Because what what happened yeah. in Avdiivka? It happened uh, mostly because uh, Ukraine was uh, out <clears throat> of funds. And that is uh, one of the elements of uh, uh, Putin's strategy. So his uh, his power, <laughs> let's say, is uh, also also because of the weakness uh, of Ukraine and of uh, Ukraine allies, which are not really interested in. But there's also this move now we've seen, you know, this this goes back to our own experience in the war in Vietnam, where soldiers' families are so disgruntled. And you saw in Russia the move of the mothers of the mobilized want to know what's happened to their kids. Do you see any role of an anti-war movement among them as having any kind of impact? Yes, yeah, so uh, for for sure there is a big anti-war uh, sentiment in some part of the Russian society. So we can say some from fifteen to thirty uh, percent of of Russians they usually express uh, some sort of the anti-war sentiments in the opinion polls. Uh, of course, the movement of the wives of the of the soldiers on the front line is the only voice of this broad anti-war sentiments. But uh, still, um, you can say that this uh, movement has wide support in the Russian society, also because of the monopoly uh, on the media from the Kremlin. You mentioned uh, both a sort of the external. The importance of, let's say, in the United States and in, in Western Europe that they aid Ukraine in this war, but also the internal where there's this sentiment that has been squashed, but nonetheless is there. So maybe you can just talk a little bit more about that. And I know, Grusha, we don't have a lot of time, but we want to talk about a few others who are being repressed as well. So maybe you could just address this internal, external, because both of you are outside now. And I assume that you're going to be eligible to vote in March, even if you're outside electronically actually electronically so maybe you we can wrap it up by talking about those two aspects the needs for international campaigns and we are of the left so it's it's a delicate sort of thing you know um 
And then, of course, you know, what's next inside Russia? So a lot, of course, to end with. <laughs> Go ahead, Grisha, you first. It is important to note that for the Russian left movement currently, there is no inside outside mm -hmm. in the sense that there is no discussion of whether those who left are wrong or right or whether those who stayed are wrong or right. We are uh, all together and we are trying to do what we can. So we need people in Russia, but we need people outside Russia because people outside Russia can help doing things that cannot be done in Russia without being put in prison. So we can help other people who are now in Russia to stay out of prison by doing things that are just forbidden by the Russian criminal code. We can also uh, help by raising funds and sending that, like, you know, to those political prisoners who need, who need uh, lawyers. There is yeah. a lot to be done. There are also Ukrainians who are travel through Russia to get to Europe because they don't want to get stuck in Russia and be forced to get a Russian passport. So there are a lot of activities that are going on and we need resources. We need help. We need international support. Um, also, there are, as Kagerlitsky said himself, there are just so many more people who are now in the need of help and who need the support by the international community, the support uh, by broad campaigns. And we need voices uh, from all over the world in their support. Uh, one of the cases that uh, we are now involved in is uh, the campaign to free Azat Miftahov, an anti-fascist who was uh, an anarchist who was arrested Six years ago, so he stayed in prison. He was supposed to get released this, like in September 2023, but he was arrested upon his release from prison and he is now being prosecuted for extremism and he can get up to five years in prison again. So we're not sure whether we'll see Azat again. He's also a mathematician and he mm. was writing his doctoral dissertation in jail, and he's uh, below 35. So think how the life of this young man is being broken. There are just so many more cases that we could discuss here. But if there is a possibility for internationally supporting those people, that is of utmost important. This is a great place for us. I know people listening to this are asking themselves, what can we do? How can we help? Is there a website that you can direct them to? Or, you know, you know, a campaign? I know it's just information, but what can you tell us? There is the Free Azat website and also uh, Solidarity with Azat organization. There is also a website and a Telegram channel, which is called Solidarity Zone. And there you'll find out all the information about uh, political prisoners and so-called uh, and people who are charged with heavier cases like extremism and terrorism. So they're much more difficult to consider political prisoners, though what they did was actually participating in some sort of insurrectionary acts. Mm -hmm. um, so they were uh, fighting the war in the way they could do it. The other uh, organization that I already mentioned is Ovide Info, 
where you can uh, find all the information about can, the current. Can you spell that? I didn't quite hear that. O V D dot I N F O. Okay, got it. Great. So Great. I'll just mention those three for now. Great. Okay. So let's uh, maybe wrap up the discussion, beginning with you, Ilya, to talk about what you think is, you know, basically what's next and whether or not you agree that these moves indicate that there is a weakness in the regime, even though you said, you know, Russia is a very rich country. It has a lot of resources, yet, you know, it has to go to these extreme measures in order to create a, a sense of legitimacy. Yeah, so I think that uh, after, uh, let's say about the perspective of the regime, that uh, after the president elections, there will be uh, intensification of the war in on internal front, uh, war against uh, whatever liberals, traitors, uh, agents of, of the West. For now, as, as Bruce already mentioned, you have a a uh, bunch of repressive uh, repressive laws. You also have the status of the foreign agent, and Boris Kogarlitsky is also foreign agent, and and many uh, many others. Uh, and uh, there is a certain strategy to uh, kind of build this patriotic unity of the society as a negative unity, as the unity against mm. these traitors, these enemies of the people. Uh, and I think that will be an important uh, strategy of the regime in order to alienate and crush any possible opposition. I, I'm not sure if this strategy will be successful or not, uh, if the Russian secret service, all the repressive apparatus, they are ready for uh, such a task, they, if if they con- could manage it. But uh, definitely, we, we are facing very hard times in Russia. I think I'm, we're going to have to end it there, but I want to thank you both so much. It was incredibly informative, and I also very much appreciate the information on what people can do, because people want to be informed, but they also want to act. And now is a critical time. So thank you for your work, and thank you for the work you're doing on Postly which I want to let people know you should go to. It's P-O-S-L-E. It means after. Finally, why did you choose after? What was the, what was the significance of that term? So there, there are two, actually, meanings. <laughs> so uh, one is that uh, this website was created after the start of the brutal invasion of Ukraine, and another side that we are thinking about what will be after this regime will collapse, what will be the alternative. Perfect. Uh, so that, that's why we choose this name. It's absolutely perfect. Thank you, Ilya Budraitskis. You can pick up his book called Dissidents Among Dissidents, Ideology, Politics, and the Left in Post-Soviet Russia, published by Verso. But just Google him. You can read any of his articles. And Grusha, I want to thank you so much for the first time coming on the show. I hope we have you back many times, and I and I will be calling you. You can look for her article. Uh, very insightful. One is called Did Lenin Create Ukraine on the Right of Nations to Self-Determination in Marxism? Another, Adorno in the Kremlin, and I'm sure there's many others. Both of those can be found at Postly, and that is the website that Grusha manages and that Ilya uh, contributes to. And I want to thank you both for joining me today on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.